I am excited to be here. Like Pastor John said, if you haven't met me, my name is Chris. I'm the junior high director here. Um, so I'm used to teaching kids. So hopefully you guys have better attention spans than that. Um, but it's always a pleasure to teach, as we call, the big people. And so Pastor Rob is, is uh, out tonight. He asked me to teach. Um, and if you guys would lift up prayers for your pastor, he's doing some awesome work uh, in your community. And so he's out doing that tonight. Um, and that's awesome. So we're going to take a, another break away from Acts. I know you guys have been enjoying that. Uh, but tonight we're going to go through um, a bit of Mark. So if you, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. And it uh, looks like we got Keith and Pastor John grabbing those for you. Um, but it looks like we're good. You guys are on point. You guys got it. You remembered. You know what church is about. It's about the Bible. Sweet. Thank you, guys. All right. So Mark chapter 4, we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, So as you turn there, I'll follow along in the reading. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, again, he, being Jesus, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, right? So there's, there's enough people that Jesus needed to get in the boat off the shore in order to teach the people. So he gets in the boat and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And this is, just before we keep going, this is an interesting way to teach, right? Like watching Jesus, seeing Jesus get into the boat and he, and he shoves off of shore and he starts teaching the multitudes. Um, and we look at this and we go, oh, that must be so nice. Oh, you get to hear a sermon from Jesus on the beach, Right, you're watching. You probably had mountain ranges behind you, and it's it's probably a gorgeous day, and and you're hearing the word. But I can't imagine. I can't imagine that the Pharisees weren't super upset about this, right? Like, hey, Jesus, teaching belongs in the synagogue. This isn't tradition, Jesus. What are you doing? You can't do this. And so it's a nice reminder as we look through this passage that tradition doesn't necessarily mean correct, right? That's a good reminder for us that tradition doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right way to do it. Because some of us, some of us get that feeling like, oh, my old church didn't do that. So we shouldn't do that. We've never done it that way. I can't worship to that kind of music. That's too loud. That's too old. Whoever, whoever worshiped to a hymn, right? Why do we have a drum set for worship, right? We kind of get into that mentality of this is the way that I did it. So that's how we have to keep doing it. But that's not the way it should be. Because who, who says that? Is, that? is that your opinion or is that what the Bible says? And so as we see Jesus teaching, we see that he starts to, to flip things back the right way, right? That, that the word of God was meant for everywhere, not just here, right? Not just the synagogues, not just church, that Jesus was taking this out to the people. And that's awesome because we see him start teaching in parables. And in verse two, we continue. It says, then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, it says, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you, it has been given. So Jesus isn't going to explain the parable yet. He's going he's to explain why he uses parables. And he says, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest they should turn and their signs be forgiven them. And we're going to jump to verse 33. And it says, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you um, that you've brought this community here, God. I thank you that, that there are people who desire you enough to come to church on a Wednesday night, a midweek service, God, that, that these people desire to, to know more about you and learn more about you. 
And so, Lord, I pray that your, your holy scripture, your active and breathing word would transform us tonight. Lord, that you would be emptying me um, as a vessel to, to carry out what you would have to say, Lord. That nothing would come of my flesh, but that all things that proceed from my mouth would be according to your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you just bless this time. We love you and we worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, so the scene enters and Jesus is teaching, right? He's teaching the multitudes from a boat. And it says that he's teaching in parables. And we read one of the parables that I'm sure a lot of us have heard many, many times. The parable of the sower. And he says there's different types of seeds. And depending on where they fall, they grow differently, right? We've all heard this. That, that some seed falls on the wayside. And so that Satan will immediately come up and he'll pluck up the word that was preached to them. And they'll lose faith. And it says that there's seed that falls on stony ground, right? Those who receive for a little bit, but they don't go deep. And then the sun comes out and they're scorched and it withers away. And it says that there's some that fall among the thorns and they start to grow. But the thorns, the things of this world, as Jesus explains, that chokes it out and they don't desire the word anymore. They desire the things of the world more. But then he says in verse 20, he says that they're, they're the good ones that are sown on good ground. And he says, those who hear it, accept it, and they bear fruit, right? And that's what I, I desire that, that all of us here tonight have. But our focus tonight isn't going to be on the parable. Our focus tonight isn't going to be on the parable, but rather what we see happen after the parable. What Jesus does with his disciples after. Because as he's teaching the masses, he doesn't explain to them the parable, right? He, he doesn't explain it. He, he waits till he's alone with his disciples and his disciples ask him about it. And so Jesus starts to explain why he uses parables. He, he explains why he uses parables that, that people are blind, that if you were to just give them truth, most of them would reject it. And so he, he puts it in a parable form that the Holy Spirit might cause them to go deeper into it, to, to, to desire to, to understand more about what it means. But we're not looking at that because we're noticing who he's telling this to. He's not talking to the masses. He's talking to his disciples, this small group of men that desired to go deeper with Jesus, that, that weren't satisfied alone with just the teachings, but they said, we want to know more. We want to go deeper with you. Great men of the Bible, people like Peter, James, John, Andrew, right? These amazing men, how, how awesome that would have been to follow Jesus daily, to hear him teach, to walk with him, to learn the word of God from God himself. But as we see these men in their ministries and as they learn, I don't want us to forget where they came from, that these men came from a humble beginning. We see, we see Peter, James, John, and Andrew called in Matthew chapter four. It says, and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea, right? They were fishermen. It says, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? A little bit of a play on words. He's like, you guys are fishermen. I'll make you fishers of men. And then verse 20 says, and they immediately, immediately left their nets and they followed him. And then going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with, with their father, mending their nets. And it says, Jesus called them. And we see in verse 22, and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. So we see these men that went on to great things for the Lord, started out with a very humble beginning. Four fishermen just doing the daily grind. And we see Jesus calls them and a very specific thing happens. They leave something. Jesus calls them and they have to leave something. And notice though, notice that Jesus is not calling them from bad things. Jesus didn't look at fishermen and despise the trade. Like, oh guys, you got to get out of this. This is going nowhere. Haven't you heard? Like fish is last year. You got to get into the new market. Jesus didn't dislike fishermen. He was totally fine with them. He didn't say, hey, hey, you guys got to leave your father. That guy's no good. He's a loser. What, what does he have to offer you? Jesus didn't have a problem with the things that they were doing. He was simply calling them to something better. He was calling them to something better. So I want us to understand that when the Lord calls us to something, it's not for the ultimate purpose to just pull you away from the things that you want. 
The Lord doesn't just pull you away from the things that he wants. He's not, hey, I want this because you're having too much fun with it. He says, give me this so that I can give you something better. He has a better alternative for us. And so he was calling them away from being fishermen, a fine trade, to being disciples. He says, come follow me. Come be my disciples. And we see that the idea of disciple comes from the word discipline, right? It was, it was a person who followed a certain discipline, a certain way of doing things, actions, thoughts. And so Jesus is calling them to be disciples. And I realized this week, and this is a question that I have for you, that is it possible that we've been so caught up in doing the works of the discipline that we forgot what it means to simply be a disciple. And that we get, we get so caught up in the daily grind of, I got to check all these things off, that we forget the original intention of, of Jesus calling us, excuse me. That we, we've kind of allowed our brains to fall into work mode and we forget about worship mode, right? And I think a big problem of that comes from an everyday worship problem. And what I mean by that is that we come to church Wednesdays and Sundays, and I am so happy that you guys do. Those are my two favorite days of the week, Wednesdays and Sundays. But, and myself included, I find myself leaving church, and then I struggle the next couple of days to get everything done, just trying to inch my way back to that next service. Just long enough, I'm stretching out Rob's messages just long enough to get to the next service. And then I can be filled again, and then I can kind of get to the next service. Right? But rather, rather, we should be in a continual state of worship, right? Worship isn't simply when Pastor John and the band plays and we sing along with him. That's not what worship is. John MacArthur will give us this definition. He says, worship, worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, words, based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. That it's us responding through who we are to who God is. And that comes from an understanding of who he is, of going deeper with him, of, of reading your word, of praying to him, not just listening to other people pray. That, that worship comes from understanding who God is and desiring more of that. That's authentic worship. MacArthur will also give us a simpler definition of worship. And I love this. He says, worship, worship is simply all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. Worship is all that we are reacting. That's our important word, reacting rightly to all that he is. And so we see God's action has come before any action of our own right? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't say once you got your life on track, then you can start worshiping. Then God accepts you. Once you make X amount on your paycheck, then you're good. Once you have these grades in school, once you get into this college, you're ready to start worshiping. That's not what it says. It says that God comes first. It's not, it's not, I have to get to this point and then I'll give myself to the Lord, right? I got to earn my way before God. It says that we react to what he's done. And so the Christian life is not about what we can give to God. It's about what we find in him, right? The Christian life isn't about what you can give to God. You could serve all day long. Doesn't make you a better Christian, because being a Christian isn't about what you've done. It's about what God's done for you. We see this idea with, with Noah, right? We all know the story of Noah. Noah's called to build a great ark for the Lord, right? This big, this wide, this tall, this many floors, this many doors. You got to do it this way and that way. You need this many number of animals, right? An amazing work for the Lord. But that's not why the Lord picked him. Because before, before Noah even received a single instruction from the Lord, Genesis tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't about what Noah had to offer the Lord. It was about what he found in the Lord. And that's important for us to understand that we, 
we wear ourselves out trying to get to the next service because we're so work-focused. We're so focused on doing. This is a culture of doing. And we forget to be a disciple. We forget to be, simply be with God, find new things about God. You guys have probably heard this from the Westminster Catechism. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I completely agree with that statement. But I think we have a tendency to begin separating those ideas. That, that there's two chief ends of man. I've got to glorify God, and then I get to enjoy him forever. So I got to work, work, work to glorify God, and then I get to enjoy him. But those two things can't be separated. And I love how John Piper kind of tweaks that saying a little bit. He says that our, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So as you're doing, doing for the Lord, are you enjoying him? Or is it a matter of I'll get through my ministry and then I'll finally have my break and I'll have some just me and Jesus time, which is great. Your personal devo time's awesome. But do you enjoy serving him? Or is it, is it a responsibility that you're trying to earn your way before him. And so the chief end of man is not to glorify God and then our reward is to enjoy him forever, but rather to glorify God while we enjoy him forever, by enjoying him forever. And so we see Jesus, he didn't pick his disciples like Peter, Andrew, James, and John because they had great things to offer him, right? He, said, he didn't say, sell all your stuff and then give me the money and I'll let you follow me. He, said, he didn't say, give me the profit from your fishing industry and then you can follow me on the weekends. Right? That's not what Jesus said. These guys didn't have anything to offer Jesus. He picked them because he knew that they would be faithful to the callings that Jesus had for him. He knew that they would give up what God called them away from in order to receive something better. Right? And that was Jesus' intention in calling them away from being fishermen. That was his point. Because you know what Jesus earned after calling these four men? Hearing four dirty, stinky fishermen. That's what Jesus got out of this deal. But these four dirty fishermen would offer their lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord. They would follow him to the end of Jesus's ministry. That as people, people rejected Jesus, they stayed with him. As the Pharisees would argue with Jesus, they stayed with him because they understood that Jesus had a better alternative for them. Are you guys tracking with me? Jesus has a better alternative for them. And I want you to imagine what it must have been like for these guys to follow Jesus. I just, I sit and I think, it's amazing that these guys get to follow Jesus. Like the incarnation, to hear from him and, and to rest with him and pray directly with him. And that's just got to be wonderful. And so they were willing to give up their, their nets, their boats, their family. Not bad things. They're willing to give them up for something better. Because let's be honest. Let's be honest. We only give stuff up most of the time. I'll, I'll add that. Most of the time, we give things up because somebody has something better to offer us, right? You give your money away, somebody will give you a product, right? You go to the Apple store, you, you're going to get your new cell phone, right? The new, the new phone, right? And so, so you, you go in and say, hey, I need a new iPhone. I want the 6 Plus S. I need, I need a new case. I need the screen protector, right? And so you buy the new iPhone, right? And so what happens to your old phone? You bring it home. It sits, on your, it sits on your shelf and it collects dust, right? It probably still works for most of us, but it just sits there, right? And so Apple knows this. And what do they do? They say, hey, if you give us your old phone, we'll give you a discount on the new one. Oh, well, here, take my phone. But if you took in your old phone and they just said, hey, give us your old phone, and your money, and then we'll give you the new phone. You'll say, no, I'll just go buy it somewhere else. I'm not going to give you my old phone. It's my phone, right? And so if they give you an incentive, if they give you something better, oh, well, a deal on the new phone, of course I'll give you the old phone, right? We only give stuff up if there's something better in return. See, we see this idea when the rich man comes to talk to Jesus. In Matthew 19, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. He says, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? 
Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what, is, what does the man say to him? He says, all these things, all these things I've, I've kept from my youth. He says, I've done it. So what do I still lack? And Jesus answers him. He says, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. He says, and come and follow me. He says, give it up. Give it up and follow me, and you'll see. In verse 22, very sad verse, it says, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He says, Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And he says, Keep the commandments. Which ones? Well, this one, this one, this one. Well, I've done that, Jesus. What next? What do I got to do to earn your approval? What do I got to do? He says, well, if you want to be perfect, sell all your stuff. Sell all your stuff. He says, and come follow me. Well, I don't want to sell all of it, right? We kind of bargain with the Lord. Well, I don't want, I don't want to give you all of it. Maybe, maybe just take these parts and the parts that I think I have control of. I'll keep those, right? Jesus says, no, get rid of all of it. Give it to me because he has a better alternative. And so I had to be really honest with myself as the Lord kind of showed this to me in that, do I view the things of God better than the things of this world? Are there things that I harbor that I think are better than God, that do a better job of sustaining me, that I need to keep going every day? Are there things that I hold on to that Jesus says, leave that and follow me? The things that I cling on to and just won't let go. Because if the things of the world look better to you than the things of God, it means nothing when we see verses like Colossians 3, 2. That says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, right? But if the things above don't look better than the things of earth, of course we're going to continue to look at the things of the earth. Why would we want to look to heaven if the things here satisfy? Why would I want that, Jesus? And so you have to be really honest with yourself. Do you want the things of God? Do they appeal to you? Not does religiosity appeal to you? Does looking like a better person because you go to church appeal to you? Do the things that God has to offer you personally in your private life, does that appeal to you more than the things of this earth? Or is your time in private something that you want no one to see? Or is it dedicated to the Lord? Is it about pursuing him in a deeper sense? And when Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He says it's the gift of God. Is that a gift that you want? Is that something that you want to receive from the Lord? Or do you find your contentment in the things of this world? Do you believe the gift of God, the grace of God to be better than the things of this world? Do you believe that that will satisfy you. Because even in the church, even in the church, we have troubles of finding our satisfaction in Jesus alone, right? Oh, well, they don't have this ministry, right? So I'm not going to go to that church. Guys, the church can't meet all of your needs. It can't fulfill you. It can't make you feel complete. Though we are here to support you, though there are so many of us who will love on you, we can't fulfill all of your needs. People can't complete you. You feel lonely, so you surround yourself with groups of people that honestly you don't care about. But the sound of them talking about things you don't care about seems better than the silence of your own home. But people can't complete you. Some of us are, as we said before, so works-focused that if I get this promotion in my job, that'll satisfy me. You know what happens when you get the promotion? You look for the next one. You get that raise that you've been waiting years for. What happens? Well, that's pretty good. But how about the next one? When's my next review? You get a new house, but then your family grows and you need a new house. But those things don't satisfy us. We try to fill these gaps and these voids with things that ultimately won't satisfy us. But once we understand that, that in Christ alone do we find satisfaction, once we begin understanding and accepting that, then we begin to experience the gift of God. 
then do we begin to experience his grace. If we truly believe that grace will satisfy us more than the things of this world, then we experience it. But if you only half-heartedly devote yourself, you're not going to get anything out of it. The Lord calls you to a complete faith, right? James says that a faith without works is dead. Put yourself out there, not in order to earn God's approval, but he says, you need to put your faith in it, right? We have the example of the chair that you, you sit in a chair and you, you believe it'll hold you, right? Why? Because well, you have faith that the chair is going to hold you. You don't think about it. You have faith that the chair will hold you. And so, so we'll, we'll say, okay, well then James' argument is if you have faith in the chair, sit in it. Well, not today, maybe tomorrow. I don't want to sit in it. No, I'm not feeling called to that today. Right? Do you really believe? Do you have faith? Do you have an active faith that will pursue God? Because if you don't truly have a faith in Jesus, if you don't believe that he's going to fulfill you, you're not going to go after him. You're not going to pursue him. See, you guys have been going through Acts Wednesday nights, right? You guys liking that? It's good? Yeah. I've been watching it online. It's so good. And as, we, as you guys look at Acts, as we look at Acts as a church, we're looking at Paul's continuation of the ministry of Jesus, right? We see, we see Paul going here and there and doing this and that and again, gets stoned over here and is imprisoned over here and he's got another shipwreck over here, right? And we see Paul continuing Jesus' ministry. And don't tell me as you guys go deeper into Acts that you can't assuredly say that Paul understands what it means to receive the grace of God. If anybody's going to understand it, Paul's going to get it. We see Paul give a bit of his testimony in Philippians 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He says, Though though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he says, I'm more so. You say, you think you're a good person? Here's what I used to do. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. He says, I did it all right. If there was anybody who had room to boast, it's going to be me. But he continues, he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says, those old things are nothing compared to what I may gain in Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Excuse me. See, Paul understands. Paul understands it's not about what you can boast about before God. It's not about saying, I made it through another week. I stretched Rob's sermon out until the next Wednesday, until the next Sunday. Paul says it's not about what you can boast about. It's what he was able to find in Christ that was so much better. He says, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. He says, I count them as rubbish. He says, they're nothing. They're useless. They're wasteful. He says, that I may gain Christ. And beyond that, he says, that I may be found in him. And I want us to think about that for a second and be found in him. See, Paul had a very deep understanding of what it meant to have his identity in Christ. Because some of us have our identities in places that aren't Christ. Some of us, some of us, it's at the place that we work, right? You introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, hi, I'm so-and-so. What's the first question you ask? Well, what do you do? That's your identity. Well, what do you do for work, right? And some of us get so stuck on that. Some of us, that's everything of our life, that every extra minute goes into overtime about looking good in front of the boss, right? That that our identity is in the next promotion, the bigger paycheck. And so we forsake our time with the Lord. We forsake our prayer life for our jobs. For, For some of us in the younger generation, it's social media, right? You post pictures of yourself all day long. Oh my gosh. I, I never really jumped on the Instagram train, but I love to look at it. 
I love to look at it. But we, you post all day long on Instagram. There's just 8,000 selfies. It's the same picture over and over again. But you care a lot about it, right? He's like, how many, how many likes do I have? Only, only 10? Like, I got like 800 followers. Why don't I have more likes? You post a video now, Instagram shows you how many views you have. So now you get to see, okay, 500 people watched it, but only 100 liked it. <laughs> Sorry, if that's your identity, you're going to be feeling pretty empty, right? And some of us, though, have our identity in that. That's what we care about. It's about the likes and the views. For many of us, this is a hard one. For many of us, our identity is in our family. For many of us, our identity is in our family. This is, this is me included. See, excuse me, I operate better in the morning than at nighttime. If you, if you catch me too late, I, mean, I won't do anything for you. I mean, I'll, I'll, if you ask me to help you, I'll try, but you're not going to get much out of me. But if you, if you say, hey, can you wake up at five and get this done? I'll probably say, yeah. I won't be super stoked right when I wake up, but I'm pretty good in the morning. And so I realized that I was neglecting to have, have any devotional time with the Lord. That I, I, I work here from, from eight till like five, six at night. I go home, I make dinner, I hang out with my wife, and then I'm tired. Lord, I'm tired. I don't, I don't have time for this, right? And so, so I, I, I really... I, built up the, the confidence and the courage and the ability to wake up early. I, I devoted myself. I said, I'm going to wake up at five o'clock and do my devos. I'm going to set my alarm for 4.45 so that I could snooze it a couple times. But then I'm going to wake up at five and I'm going to do my devos. The alarm goes off the first night that I did this. I say night because it's five in the morning. That's still nighttime. So five in the morning, my alarm goes off. And I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so ready to get out of bed. And I, I pull the covers off and my wife rolls over and puts her arm around me. Oh man. Oh, now my wife, she wants me to stay. I gotta stay, Lord. If I want to be a good husband, I gotta stay here, right? Lord, Lord, I'm being a good husband because she wants me to stay, right? She had no malicious intents. She did this half asleep. She was just like, okay, he's moving, I'll move too, right? Locked me in. I could have said, honey, I got to get up. I got to spend my time with the Lord. But I picked her. I picked her. Of course, you're gonna, if that's your options, waking up at, at five in the morning or sleeping in a little bit longer, you're going to pick sleeping in a little bit longer. My wife's in bed with me. And so the Lord, I did this a couple days I'm not gonna lie, I did it, I did it a solid week. <laughs> and that was like a month ago and I still haven't done it, so a couple weeks. But I tried so hard and every time this happened, and the Lord said, Hey, hey, you say that the better husband would stay. But he made me think, he said, What would the better husband really do? Are you gonna stay the extra hour of of, of laying in bed? Or is a better husband going to build himself, himself up in Christ so that he could be a truly better husband? But my identity was in my wife. I got to make her happy. I want to make her happy. My time that's not at work, it has to go to her. That was my mindset. My identity was in my family. And Jesus said, I'm not asking you to leave your wife. Right? He says, I'm not calling you away from your wife. I'm calling you to something better that's going to make you a better husband for her. But when our identity is found in the wrong things, we kind of get our perspective skewed, right? We got our perspective skewed. And so as we look deeper and deeper into God calling away the disciples from not necessarily bad things, but to some things better, I don't want us to be fooled, right? Because something better is honestly not always something easier. Something better is not always something easier. Paul, who we just talked about, joy for the Lord, experienced the grace, knew what it was like to persecute the church and say, have the Lord Jesus himself say, I forgive you, be my apostle, follow me. That same Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 12, and lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And he doesn't say what it was, but something was just eating away at Paul. It says, a messenger of Satan, lest I should be exalted above measure. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. Three times he went to the Lord. He says, Lord, take this away from me. Lord, take this thorn from me. 
And what did the Lord tell him? Verse 9 says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, since I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, at times, at times we may be experiencing the grace of the Lord at a mountaintop experience. That everything is great, that you have an abundance of blessings from the Lord that, that you clearly know you don't deserve. Everything is wonderful and you understand the grace of the Lord. But there's other times where his grace is a means to see us through valleys. That the mountaintop experiences are great to see the, the grace of the Lord. But there's times where he'll take us through valleys and he'll tell us my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough to see through it. See, as Christians, as Christians, we're not exempt from trials. Grace doesn't mean, hey, everything's going to be easy now. You know, pick Jesus and all of a sudden, you know, your boss will be nice to you. All of a sudden you're able to come into work late. Your children will stop being brats, right? If you, if you accept Jesus, everything's going to be easy. That's not what the Bible says. But in Paul's trial... The Lord reminded him that his grace is sufficient. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so as Paul was asking, Lord, take this away from me. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. But as soon as we lose sight of the sufficiency of the Lord, we mentally lock onto our own needs, don't we? We, we, we focus on what we need at this present. And so how can James say, in James 1, 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy when you go through trials. How can James say this? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. The same word, trial, can be rendered in the English as temptation. And so, so I don't want to say that every time you see trial, you can replace it for temptation. That's not what I'm saying. But it's interesting that the same word here that James uses for trial, we see used again when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter four, it says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want you to listen to that. Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus was put through a trial. Notice that, that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, but it was not God who tempted him. It was not God that created this trial. Rather, he allowed Jesus to go through it so that at all times, God remained sovereign and the devil was the sinister one. So when you're going through your trials, don't blame it on the Lord. But sometimes he wants you to understand that, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. So you're going to endure you're going to be put through this, right? And so as the devil is tempting Jesus, we see that the devil, uh, the devil tempts him by appealing to the two things that matter most to us. The first one is ourselves. The first one is ourselves. He says, Jesus, you're hungry. It's 40 days. He says, you're hungry. Just turn that stone into bread. Fulfill yourself. Feed yourself. Come on, Jesus. He appeals to the self. And the second one, Second one is, he appeals to what we wish we had. He appeals to what we wish we had. And so if, if we don't understand the Lord's sufficiency, if we want more, that's where we start to get tempted, right? That's where we start to get tempted. And I'm not saying every time you go through a trial, it's your fault. But I bet a lot more times than you realize, it's because you're, you're succumbing to temptations, you're allowing yourselves to be pulled by the devil. You're allowing your flesh to take over. And so, oh, why is my life so tough? Why can't I just see the, why can't I get the promotion? Why does my boss hate me? Why do you need a bigger paycheck? And we fall into the temptations and we, and we lead ourselves into trials. But we're, if we're able to see the sufficiency in the grace and love of Jesus. What does Satan have to tempt us with? What does Satan have to tempt us with? 
And so we see the power of James when he says, therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says, resist. When you're tempted, don't just immediately give into it. He says, continue to put yourself against the devil's ways. How did Jesus do it? He recited scripture. He didn't play with the ideas that Satan had, right? Jesus, I will give you all of these cities. Well, that's, that's a pretty good deal, Satan. Let me, let me pray about it and we'll see. That's not what he said. He quoted scripture. You know what he quoted? He quoted Deuteronomy. How gnarly is that? I bet a lot of us haven't even read Deuteronomy, right? But Jesus quoted Deuteronomy showing us that, that all scripture is, is, is eternal. And so in order to resist, we see James say that we must submit to God. We must submit to him. We must understand that what he has is better, that he's sufficient for us, right? So that, so that none of us have the right to say, hey, the devil made me do it. I'm just being really oppressed right now. No, 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 that's not what, that's not what we see here. We see here now, that now in Christ, if, you're, if you feel that he is enough for you, there's always a righteous way out. There's always a better way out. And so at times, at times the spirit may lead us into the wilderness. We may face trials. We may face temptations. I know the body is, is going through a lot lately. And that's why I don't want to say, hey, it's always your fault. Sometimes stuff happens. There's cancer in the body. There's deaths in the body. There's a lot of brokenness in the body. Sometimes God allows that to happen so that we can see that his grace is sufficient for us. But I want, I want you guys to really ask yourself, do you believe that? And sometimes, sometimes he calls us away from, from our boats and our nets, from our fathers, right? Not bad things, but both with the intentions to grow us into a deeper relationship with him, right? We see the body, right? Our bodies grow in one of two ways. First one's nourishment, right? You feed yourself, you eat, and you grow. The second one, second one's resistance, right? That's, that's the principal idea behind working out. You want to you wanna get stronger? You, you get some resistance on your muscles, you, you get something to push back against the natural movements of your body and, you, and you, grow, you grow stronger. And that's the same way that we grow spiritually. That sometimes, sometimes it's going to be the mountaintops and it's going to be nourishment and everything's great and you are just excited to be in the Lord. But sometimes it's going to be resistance. It's going to be the valleys where you're pushing back. But if you're pushing back on your own, Nothing's going to get done. Nothing's going to get done. And I had to ask myself, and I want to ask you guys, what are your boats and your nets? What are the things that seem good, that may not be bad, that the Lord's called you away from? What are the things that you simply won't abandon for the Lord? The things that, oh, this is comfortable. This is a job. This is a day job. That's what these guys had was a, a steady paycheck, Right? some fun with their dad. But Jesus called them away from it. And I'm not saying go quit your job, that's silly. But what are the things that Jesus calls you away from that we just can't let go of? That one friend that we used to have, that's just not somebody we should be with anymore. Maybe you're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in. Maybe the Lord's calling you to, to move somewhere else. Maybe the Lord's calling you to, to take a deeper step into where you're serving but we get so caught up on the comfortability of our boats and our nets that we won't abandon it for the Lord. And so the question for us then comes down to this. What do you desire? What do you desire more? Do you desire to go deeper into the things of this world? Do you desire to go deeper into your sinful addictions, right? Deeper into a, a need to work to make yourself feel good. A deeper need to prove yourself to people. That was me growing up. I had to prove myself to people. I felt like I just needed to work harder. Do you want to go deeper into that? Do you desire that? Or do you desire to go deeper into the things of God? Love, grace, compassion, forgiveness, freedom, liberty, forgiveness. 
First Corinthians 2, 9, I love this. It says, but as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. That the Lord's given us the ability to go deeper. And so to tie it back to where we started, Jesus used parables when he was with the masses, but the ones that desired him more, he went deeper with them. And we close with these thoughts. Verse 33 of our passage, it says, and with many such parables, you spoke the word to them as were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. He explained all things because they desired to know all things. The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it and you shall receive it. But a lot of us want it, but we don't really want it. You know, like it sounds like a good idea, but if I got to give that up, I don't want it. These men were willing to leave their nets, their boats, their fathers to go deeper with Jesus. And I love this. See, the way it worked back in Jesus' day is that at the age of six, at the age of six, the young men in the community would go off to school to get educated. It's kind of like Sunday school, Bible class. It was called the Bet Sefer, the house of the book. Six years old, guys, that's pretty small. Like, have you seen Ethan Glesney, Chris's son? That's, that's pretty small. Six years old, these, these boys would be sent off to school, and they would learn the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Right? Well, which a lot of us probably haven't gone through numbers. Who's gone through numbers, right? Deuteronomy, yeah, amen. That was the first book that I did discipleship with was numbers. I was like, numbers? Bro, have you looked at the Bible? What do numbers last? Like after Revelation, right? <laughs> and so these kids would learn the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, memorizing it. And they would do this five to six days a week, waking up as early as three or four in the morning, Right? So don't tell me you can't wake up a little earlier to get your devos in. These boys were waking up at three or four in the morning to learn this. And by the age of 10, when they would leave the Bet Sefer, they would have the first five books memorized. So you could walk up to one of these kids and say, hey, what's Numbers 13, 12? And they'd know it, right? Like most of us got like John three sixteen down and that's it, right? These kids knew the Pentateuch, memorized it. And the best of these kids at the age of 10 would move on to the school of Bet Talmud, the house of learning. And this is where they would go deeper into the word. They would, learn, they would learn the rest of the Bible up through Malachi, right? The Old Testament. They would go deeper. They would learn oral law beyond scripture. This is what the, the, the rabbis, the local rabbis had to say of scripture, right? You go online, you read the commentaries. This is what they were doing. They were reading the rabbi's commentary on scripture, how they interpreted it. And so as they, were, as they learned the scripture, they were taught to view the view scripture in a different way. That rather than being able to simply answer a question about scripture, they were taught to ask another question so that you would have to think about it again. And then the response to that question would be another question. And this was to draw the kids deeper into a deeper understanding, to, to always be asking more about the word of God. And so it was the, it was the best and the brightest of these ones that would be given the privilege to, to go up to a local rabbi. They would give themselves to a rabbi. This was, this was called the, the Bet Midrash, the house of study. And if you got into the house of study, that, that meant that you went to a rabbi and you said, I love the way that you interpret scripture. I love the way that you understand the Lord. I love the way that you live it out. And I want that too. I want to not only interpret like you, but I want to apply it like you. I want to live it like you. I love the way that you understand the Lord. But the rabbi couldn't choose everyone, right? The rabbi could only choose a few. And the rabbi wasn't just looking for the best and the brightest, the kids who had the, the, most, the best memorization and the, the deepest doctrine. It wasn't just the smartest kids that he was picking, but he was looking for the ones that truly, truly believed that the way the rabbi interpreted and, and applied it and lived out scripture was good. And he wanted the ones that would follow like him, not the ones that just wanted to get in 
to, to the Bet Midrash. He wanted the kids that would follow just like him. He, he wanted people that would follow his system in, of interpretation, which was called a yoke. The ways that the rabbis interpreted and applied scripture, that was called their yoke. So you would, you would go to a rabbi and say, I want this. And those that the rabbi chose would say, come follow me. He would say, come follow me. And that, would have must, that must have been wonderful. To, to, to go to the rabbi that you just admired and that you loved hearing from, for them to say, come follow me. Yes, I accept you. That must have been wonderful. But I hope you guys didn't forget about the first group of kids that didn't get past the Bet Sefer, the first school, because we left them out. What happened to the kids that didn't go on to the next school and then eventually to a rabbi? Well, they were sent home. The rabbis would say, hey, you did, you did a wonderful job studying. You did a great job, and I admire you. But I need you to go home. I need you to be faithful in, in the trades of your, of your father. So whether you are a carpenter or maybe a fisherman, you were sent home to go do the trades of your father. Men like Peter, James, John, and Andrew sent home to go to the trades of their father. And so we see the weight and the power when Jesus calls them. And again, when he says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you, my yoke, my way of interpreting and applying scripture and learn from me. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, men, men who were, desi- who, who were denied the ability to go deeper into scripture with, with the local rabbis would have to go home. Peter, James, and John. They didn't, get to, they didn't get to go on. The rabbi said, no, I'm sorry. And then the rabbi Jesus comes. And he says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Can you imagine the joy they must have felt? Yes, of course, I will follow you. Yes, you accept me as I am. Right? They didn't have to prove that they had memorized the Pentateuch from the Bet Sefer. Jesus simply said, come follow me. And in faith, they left their nets, their boats, and their fathers for something better. So it wasn't working harder. It wasn't studying more. They went deeper with Jesus because they desired to, and they allowed themselves to be taught as disciples. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would call us deeper as disciples, that we would forsake the things of this world that, that just seem so nice and so comfortable. But Lord, would you remind us that you have something so much better. And so Jesus, we want to worship you in everything that we do, that we wouldn't end worship here at this service, but God, we would be in a, in a state of continual everyday worship. Lord, that it would be all that we are reacting rightly to all that you are. So Lord, we declare that we love you. And whenever I say that I love you, Lord, you remind me that you loved me first and you love me so much better. And so God, help us to experience that love. Help us to choose the things of of heaven above the things of this earth, Lord. Help us to be faithful to hear your callings. Lord, to, to find your grace sufficient in the mountains and in the valleys. Lord, help us to experience what it means to live as disciples of the wonderful teacher, Jesus Christ. We praise your name, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.